All right, so I'm uh, Pastor Andrew Gross. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. Uh, very honored to be speaking this morning. Um, so uh, to get us ready to hear this message, I have a few questions for us. And uh, so, all right, a few, few questions for us, because these are questions I've been asking myself as I've been preparing uh, this message. And I'm wondering if anyone else like me is ever uh, dissatisfied with uh, my own kind of lackluster obedience. By lackluster, you know what I mean. It's kind of half-hearted. It's uh, kind of without passion. Uh, it's uh, sometimes it's not very heartfelt. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you don't like the word obedience, I get that. A lot of people don't like that word anymore. Following Jesus dissatisfied with the lackluster way you follow Jesus. I wonder if anybody else feels that way, like I do sometimes. Um, or if anyone ever feels frustrated, like I do, by my own inconsistent obedience. One day I'm on fire for God, I'm ready to follow him. I say I'm ready to follow him wherever, wherever he goes. Next day, uh, not feeling it. Not feeling it at all. Um, so I don't, I don't know, maybe some of you feel that way sometimes. Uh, anybody ever angry at yourself, like I am sometimes, for messing up again? Uh, I promised God I was not going to fail him in that way again. I promised God that I was, I was not going to commit that sin again. I promised God that I was going to follow him, and here I am messing up again. I don't need anybody to directly you know, stand up and, and, uh, and say that this is true of you too, but um, if you're human as I am, <laughs> then it's quite possible sometimes you have these, these feelings. So as you're thinking about uh, answers to these questions, um, uh, we're, I want to review a little bit and, and uh, let us know where we are. We are launching um, a series uh, today called uh, God's Vision for His People in 10 Words. And those 10 words, of course, are the Ten Commandments. That word commandment can be just as legitimately translated as word as it can be translated uh, commandment. And so uh, we're going to, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to unfold uh, what, what that means. What are those 10 words and what do they mean and how do they apply today? Because a lot of us struggle with, does this even apply to us today? So to get into that, a little review of where we've been, uh, we're, we're, we're headed back to Exodus. We took a lot of the summer off of Exodus. Uh, we, ever since Pastor Steve started here, um, a little over a year ago, uh, we started in Genesis, and we've been uh, going through Genesis, and uh, then we've been in Exodus for a while, and now um, uh, we're kind of partway through Exodus. So, uh, so far in Exodus, uh, we spent time talking about Moses' story, uh, and uh, we spent some time uh, talking about that time he confronted the Pharisees, or sorry, the Pharisees, the, the Pharaoh, <laughs> and uh, uh, demanded, uh, here, here was this uh, this convicted criminal, um, poor, a poor shepherd at this point, uh, standing before the most powerful monarch on the whole earth, Pharaoh, and demanding, let my people go from slavery. And then we spent some time talking about the great escape, the actual exodus when the Israelites, uh, the God parted the Red Sea for them, they escaped on dry land and uh, came into freedom uh, from slavery. And where we've been most recently is the wilderness, the wilderness. 
And now, as Pastor Steve introduced us to last week, we are on the verge of talking about the law. The law. Now, I, I hope you remember this from last week. This is really, really important before we dive into this, okay? Uh, Pastor Steve asked us last week, is the Torah, the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, is the Torah for today? Is it for today? And this is a really important question to ask because many, Christ, many people, even Christians today, will say, oh, you know, Jesus replaced that with grace and with love, or Jesus got rid of that, and uh, now it's all about love. It's all about love. Well, it is all about love, but Jesus didn't actually replace or get rid of the Torah. So the answer to the question is yes, the Torah is for today, and uh, and then, of course, all kinds of questions come up, like, why am I uh, doing things that uh, were commanded not to do? Why am I eating shellfish and so on? Well, we're going to get into all that stuff. Uh, but important for us to remember, as Pastor Steve reminded us last week, uh, it was Paul himself. He's the big grace guy. Remember, he's the guy who, who said over and over again, it was, it was all about grace, God's grace. Uh, Paul is the one who wrote this. He said, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and by the Holy Scriptures, he wasn't talking about the New Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. It was only partway uh, written, and it wasn't all collected in one place. So he meant the Old Testament, and he meant specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He said, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So if we want to be among those people who can do every good work that God calls us to do, if we want to be among the people who don't have lackluster obedience, uh, whose uh, obedience is consistent, um, then we actually need the Torah because, according to Paul, New Testament grace guy, the Torah is going to help us, it's going to prepare us and equip us for every good work. So, then of course the question comes up, what is the law? And Pastor Steve started to get at this last week, and uh, one of the quotes he brought up, a famous Bible scholar, Chester Wood, says, uh, the law of Moses is primarily a constitution dealing with the construction of a just society. It's a constitution dealing with the construction of a just society. Now, why is this important that it's about the construction of a just society? And the reason it's important for you and me today is because God is still trying to construct a just society. He's still about that business in our lives. And he's not just working in us individually, he is doing that, but he is also working in us as a body. He's working in us as a community. He's trying to shape a just community. And why, why is that important? Well, a just society is important uh, for, for this reason. I want to remind us, Pastor Steve brought us uh, to this um, uh, passage last week at the beginning. We're going to spend a lot of time here in this chapter today, Exodus 19. Um, <clears throat> it says this at the beginning of Exodus 19, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, 
If you want to obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So here is God, out of his grace, out of his love, choosing the Israelites and making them his own special treasure among all the people of the earth. And he does that to Christians today. Uh, Christians are his own special treasure. And what was the role of the Israelites? Well, at the end of this passage here in verse 6, it says, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. What is so important about being a kingdom of priests and his holy nation? You see, the Israelites, so a priest, by the way, the most simple definition of a priest is a priest is a mediator. A priest stands between two parties and mediates between them and helps them have a relationship with each other. That's what a priest does. And uh, so a priest stands between one party, God, and another party, humanity, and mediates between them. The whole nation of Israel was supposed to be, according to this passage and according to what God had already revealed to Abraham and the other patriarchs, the whole nation of Israel was supposed to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to stand as a nation between God and all the rest of humanity so that humanity could discover who God really is by the just society that they observed in the Israelites. They were supposed to look at the Israelites, see how they behaved with one another, see how they treated one another, see how they interacted with one another, and say, oh, that's, so they, that's the kind of God they serve. They don't serve a capricious, mean, nasty God that just wants to exact revenge or is selfish and wants to serve his own ways. They serve this just God. Because look at how just their society is. Does that, does that make sense? And so... That is still true today for the church. When we look at the New Testament, Jesus himself prayed that we would be one, we would be united, so that the world would believe. The world is supposed to look at the Christian church and see the just society that exists and say, oh, that's, that's this God that they're talking about. That's what this is about, all right? And so... Uh, and, and as, as uh, the Apostle Peter wrote, we are, we are also called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are still that kingdom of priests that stands between God and the rest of humanity and intercedes or mediates between them. All that to say, the shape of our society still matters. The, whether or not we are a just society still matters. Um, okay. So, because it still matters, we are going to get into this. So, we're going to read through Exodus 19. So, there are pew Bibles in front of you. There's, most of you probably also have a Bible on your phone. We're going to turn to Exodus 19. Now, no, no sneaking looks at other things while we're reading through Exodus 19 on your phone. <clears throat> we're going to read through this together. And, uh, yeah. So, let's do this. Exodus 19, right after, right after Exodus 18, in case anybody's wondering. <clears throat> Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt to the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. 
After they set out for Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Hmm. See if that holds true. Future chapters. Side commentary. Okay. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people may hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Uh, the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them tomorrow, today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of, the, of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and, may, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through the mountain or through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right. So what's going on here? What's happening? We see the Israelites. They've been in the wilderness for three whole months. They've already had some very difficult and straining uh, events going on inside the camp. And here they are, and we have this pretty scary scene of God coming down to meet them in this thick, dark cloud. 
what is all that about? What's happening here? We see that the people, we see this whole chapter is this kind of pause before we hear the Ten Commandments. Everyone's getting ready to hear the Ten Commandments. And uh, the Ten Commandments are this one moment where God spoke directly to the people, where they could actually hear his voice. All the rest of the law, as we're going to find out, all came through Moses and Aaron. Moses told it to Aaron, and Mo- or God told it to Moses, Moses told, told it to Aaron, and they told it to the people. But for the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, there's this one moment when God speaks directly to the people. And what we see happening here is this sort of preparation for that. We see this preparation for that. What, why, though? Why the drama? Why the violently shaking mountain? Why the thunder and lightning? Why the thick cloud? Why the limits? Why even, there's even the death penalty if they cross the limits. Why? Why is it so severe and so harsh? Well, some of the answer to that is, part of the answer is we're going to actually skip ahead, past the Ten Commandments, look with me at verse 18 of chapter 20. Verse 18 of chapter 20 says this when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke they trembled with fear they stayed at a distance and said to Moses speak to us yourselves and we will listen but do not have God speak to us or we will die Moses said to the people Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Okay. So, we find out here from this verse that the reason God put on all this drama, all the fireworks and the thick cloud and the violently shaking mountain, the reason, it says, it was, a, it was God was testing them so that the fear of God would be with them. And the reason God wanted the fear of God with them was to keep them from sinning. Now, I asked you some questions, questions at the beginning of the message and that question is, anyone else ever feel like, anyone else frustrated with their own inconsistent obedience or their lackluster obedience or their uh, messing up again? And if anyone ever feels that way, one of the solutions or one of the answers to that, according to this scripture, is that the fear of the Lord would be with us to keep us from sinning. Now, now stop right there. Pastor Andrew, stop right there. The fear of the Lord. I do not like that concept. I don't like that term. We're pretty embarrassed by that term, aren't we? It's kind of the first thing when we're talking to non-Christian friends and family, and they say, well, I don't, I don't like the Christianity stuff because you you're just supposed to be afraid of God all the time. And you're like, oh, no, 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 not. I mean, you know, when it says fear of God, it kind of means, you know, like a deep reverence and an awe. And, you know, it doesn't really mean fear. And, you know, I don't know if anyone else has done that. I sure have said that a zillion times. We're kind of embarrassed by that concept. And we're embarrassed not only for uh, other people, but we're embarrassed for ourselves. And we don't, we don't want to think of a God that, that wants us to be fearful. Um, it's it's, it's kind of it's scary. 
or we, we kind of pass it off and we say, well, that's sort of an immature stage of faith. And really, uh, Jesus is all about love, and so I'm all about love, and so it's all about love. And, uh, and then we sort of dismiss this whole idea of uh, the fear of the Lord. Or we say, oh, it's, it's only kind of, isn't that sort of an Old Testament idea? It's not really a New Testament idea. Or we say things like it's kind of the opposite of love. You know, we'll, people quote out of context, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, perfect love drives out fear. That's true, especially when you understand it in context. People love uh, that verse in John, 1 John, and they usually don't read the rest of 1 John ever, but <clears throat> they like that verse. Um, so what are we going to do with this idea of the fear of the Lord? Especially when, according to Exodus 19, that's one of the secrets for a consistent, faithful walk with God. That's one of the secrets if we're going to have a consistent, if we're, if we're going to stop always being mad at ourselves for messing up again, we somehow need to learn what this idea is about. What is the fear of God all about? So to help us understand that, um, I, I, um, I'm going to break it down a little bit here. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing, I, I've got several statements I need to make about the fear of God to help us understand it, help us wrestle with it a little bit. The first thing is that the fear of God is biblical, all right? It's not something that preachers added later because they wanted to make the parishioners really afraid and scared and do what they wanted to do. Um, it's not something uh, that uh, it just harkens back to ancient history. Well, that's how people viewed the world way back when the Bible was written. Um, the idea of the fear of the Lord is actually interwoven into the whole fabric of the Bible. And if we're going to call ourselves biblical Christians, if we're going to say that the Bible is our rule and it's, kind of, it's, it's sort of what the final um, uh, message of God is, if we're going to say that, then we need, instead of cherry-picking out ideas about God and, and his love and the things we like, we act, this is one of those concepts we are required to pay attention to and take seriously. So it's, it's biblical. Um, I, uh, this little picture... I, you can see I'm not very good with these graphics here, but that's supposed to be a lump of clay in between two hands, two hands coming out of the Bible. I know it's kind of freaky, but we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be that lump of clay, and we're supposed to let the Bible shape us, and not just parts of the Bible, not just the parts of the Bible that we feel comfortable with, with the whole thing, okay? Now, uh, Pastor Steve and others are going to help us explain why do, in future weeks, why are there, you know, why do we ignore, why do we get to ignore the scriptures in the Old Testament about shellfish and mixed fabric and so on, uh, and, but we are supposed to pay attention to other things. We're going to get to all that. We're going to sort through all of that, okay? But we have to have a view of God that covers the whole Bible, okay? Not just a verse here and a verse there, okay? Um, <clears throat> All right, so the second thing I want to say about this idea is that fearing God is New Testament. It's not just Old Testament. This little blue piece of paper you got in your uh, bulletins, one side of it, it says, fearing God is also a New Testament idea. I just put together a few of the verses in the New Testament that reference the idea of fearing God, okay? And guess what? In the New Testament, it doesn't say anywhere the fear of God is old-fashioned and we can ignore it. 
In fact, all the writers of the New Testament and all the people speaking in the New Testament speak very highly of the idea of fearing God, and it's actually viewed as something very good and very positive. Um, so on your own time, spend some time looking through. Jesus had things to say about the fear of God. The Apostle Luke had things to say about fearing God. The Apostle Paul, he's the big grace guy, right? He had a lot of things to say about fearing God. And there's several other passages to look up. But here's some uh, study you can do on your own. So it is a New Testament idea. It's not just in the Old Testament. The next thing is the fear of God is actually beneficial. It's actually Good. If you look on the other side of this, it says some benefits of fearing God. And you could, and I just listed a very few, okay? Uh, But you can go through scripture and um, just read a few. Psalm 25, verse 12 Who then are those who fear the Lord? God will instruct them in the way they should choose. I want to be instructed in the way I should choose. Uh, God wants me to choose. Next one, Psalm 31, verse 19 How abundant are the good things you have stored up. For the people who only believe in your love, actually stored up for those who fear you, okay? The list goes on and on and on. Here's some study you can do on your own, but this idea of fearing God is New Testament and it is actually beneficial. One of the, yeah, I know, one amen. We'll hopefully get a few more by the end of here, by the end of this. One kind of reluctant, amen, I guess. I'm supposed to say amen now. There's a pause, all right, amen, all right. I really don't want you to preach about fear of the Lord, Pastor Andrew. Please don't preach about fear of the Lord. Um, all right, uh, one of the benefits, and, and this, this kind of gets us back to that First John uh, chapter 4, verse 18 quote that everybody likes to quote, but they don't like to read the rest of the, of the book. Um, uh, one of the benefits of fearing God is that the fear of God actually pushes out and subdues all other fears, okay? Look at, look at how Moses put this. We're going to go back to Exodus uh, chapter 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and to keep you from sinning, okay? It sounds like he's saying two totally opposite things. That sounds like they're fearing God back there. All right, um, uh, it sounds like he's saying two totally opposite things. He's saying, don't be afraid and be afraid. Don't be afraid, be afraid. What's, what on earth? Well, <clears throat> he's telling them not to be afraid, both of the thunder and the lightning and everything else that they're seeing and trembling with fear. He's telling them not to be afraid of all these things around them. What they really need to fear is God. Um, and and, and, and when, you, when we do fear God, we discover takes care of our other fears. Now, why, why would that be? How does this work? You see, fear is about dependence. Fear is about dependence. We fear the things that we think we depend on. If I think that my welfare and my happiness is dependent on my healthy body, what am I going to be afraid of? Sickness, illness, injury, okay? If, I'm, if, I depend, if I think that my health and happiness and welfare is dependent on the favor of my boss, my boss is the one who decides whether I'm happy and things are going well uh, in my life, who do I fear? I fear my boss, okay? If I think my welfare is dependent on my, my reliable car, 
then what are you going to do like the day, uh, uh, the day I walked out one morning and somebody had slashed my tires? Um, uh, not fun at all. If, and, and if you are depending on that car, uh, you, what are you going to be afraid of? You're going to be afraid of something happening to that car. All right? The list goes on and on. You can all think of at least a dozen things that you feel like you depend on. All right? The reality is that actually what we really depend on isn't your healthy body, your boss, your car, any of those other things. What you actually depend on for your welfare and your happiness is God. It's God alone who you depend on. All right? And when you depend on something, you give that thing your total attention, don't you? That thing that you depend on, that thing that you are afraid of losing, you, it has all of your attention and you give it all of your respect and all of your effort. Uh, um, years ago when I was, uh, um, in, I was a missionary in Ukraine and uh, in that time some Ukrainian friends took me uh, on a cave exploring trip and this particular cave was a 300 foot hole down in the ground. And the only way you could get there was you had to get all harnessed up and you had to rappel down uh, 300 feet to the bottom uh, and you were attached the whole time to a rope. You couldn't crawl down, you couldn't climb down, you couldn't walk down. You had to be lowered down, attached to this rope. In that time, I was very aware that my entire life depended on this one string. It didn't depend on my wits, it didn't depend on my... Uh, strong hands, it didn't depend on anything else, it depended on this one, what felt at the time to be a thin string. It was probably like this thick, but in my mind it was like this thin. And, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was a little scary. And uh, there was a, you know, it was hard for a few moments to just like relax and look at the beauty of the cave around me uh, because I was thinking about this one little string. What if that, is, that, is that string fraying up there right now? Is that fraying? Someone tell me it's not fraying. I didn't know the word for fraying in Russian, so I couldn't ask it. Anyway, <clears throat> it didn't fray, but um, I, was, I was worried about it. So that's how fear works, is that um, whatever we truly depend on, that's what has our attention and our effort and our respect. That's what has our fear. Um, and, and so when we have the fear of the Lord and we realize that our welfare is dependent solely and exclusively on him, all the other fears are quieted or chased away. Does that connection make sense? All right, so one way we could define the fear of the Lord is this, to say the fear of the Lord is that sense of total dependence on God's mere favor. You're not being held up by your strong body. You're not being held up by all your friends and family. You're not being held up by other people's good graces. You're not being held up by your own wits and your own intelligence. You're not even being held up by your own righteousness and your own integrity. You are being held up exclusively and entirely and only by God's mere favor. His favor is that string, that one little string that's holding you up and keeping you from an eternity of darkness. And Jesus reiterates this in a very powerful way. I think this is probably the most, you know, as always, Jesus has that, that word that kind of ends it all, says it all for us. 
in uh, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4, this is what uh, Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. I just want to pause right there. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. I don't know about you, but if somebody had a gun to my head or a knife to my throat and I was just about to die, I know I would be afraid in that moment of those people, okay? I know I would be. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. Um, and, and why? He says, afterwards, they can do no more. Oh, so, so death of my body is not like the worst thing to happen to me? This is what Jesus said in verse 5. He says, um, he says, but I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So one of those powerful statements about the fear of the Lord is, there's this sense, Jesus is describing it for us, this sense of total dependence on nothing else but the mere favor of God. God actually has the authority. He actually has the right. He would actually be just if he threw us into hell. Keep reading in next verse, verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. Jesus is once again, just like Moses said, don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Okay? He connects that care and that love and that favor of God with this idea that we need to fear the one on whom everything exclusively depends. So, we found out fearing God is biblical. We found out fearing God is New Testament. It's not just Old Testament. We found out fearing God is beneficial. Um, and we've also found out that fearing God is necessary for successful obedience. If we are going to successfully obey God, we need to fear him. Because when we fear him, we know everything completely depends on him. And like that one string that held me up in that cave, we need to know that if if it's God's mere favor that us, upholds us, we want to give his favor our full and complete and undivided attention. That's how the fear of the Lord makes us successful in following him. But now, there's something even better than the smoking mountain and the violently quaking mountain and the limits with the death penalty, and the cleansing ourselves days ahead of time. There's something even more powerful that we have that will give us this gift of the fear of the Lord. And that is actually, strangely, it's the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. How does this work? Well, look at what the psalmist said, anticipating what God would do through Jesus the psalmist writes, If you, Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He recognizes that if God, who sees everything, who can't, no sin can be hidden from him, even the smallest sin, and he recognizes that so many of the sins are worthy of death with a just and righteous God. He recognizes all that, and he realizes that no one, including himself, 
would be able to stand if the Lord were to mark that iniquity. He says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12. You can read along with me or you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, starting in verse 18, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice being, uh, speaking words that those who heard it beg that no further word would be spoken to them. He's referring, of course, to chapter 19 of Exodus. He says, you haven't come to that because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling in fear. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because we... The, the mountain of Sinai was powerful, it was important, but we know when we read the rest of the story that the fear of the Lord that they experienced that day did not move them to that kind of obedience God called them to. But when we recognize that in Christ, God did not mark our iniquities, but he removed them from us as far as the east is from the west, when we recognize that our sins that condemn us before God have been taken away from us so that now we stand before God and we don't have to come to this mountain that is quaking, and, but actually we have come to Mount Zion through Jesus Christ. When we recognize that Jesus has mediated a new covenant for us and we have come to his sprinkled blood and that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, meaning that blood of Jesus that he shed is more, it is more possible to be forgiven through his blood than by any other means. When we recognize that, that puts in us, like it did for the psalmist, the fear of God, where we, re where we realize that our entire welfare, our eternal welfare is hanging by this one string of God's mere favor. And guess what? That string of God's mere favor is all-powerful. The worship team could come on up. Verse 25 of Hebrews 12 says this as his final warning. See to it, okay? He says, he's just said, you haven't come to this quaking mountain and smoking mountain. Instead, what you've come to is Mount Zion. In verse 25 now, he says, see to it, you do not refuse him who speaks. He's spoken, us, spoken to us through the mountain through the trembling mountain, the dark, fearful clouds, that wasn't enough. Now, he's speaking, spoken through Jesus Christ. He says, don't refuse him. Don't refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned him on earth, how much less will we 
if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. He's referring to Exodus 19 again. But now he has promised, once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 